and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Michael Talbot, and it's my great pleasure to be here today in sunny Rethymno on the island of Crete with Antonis Hajikiriakou, a Marie Curie Fellow based here at the Institute of Mediterranean Studies. Antonis, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. Thanks very much. Great. So we've been here in Rethymno. One of the reasons why I've got the opportunity to speak to you is uh, because you've co-organised a, a wonderful international conference on uh, insularities, on thinking about what it means to be an island and to be around islands and to interact with islands. Um, perhaps we could begin by uh, telling our listeners how you came to think about islands and insularity. So the reason why I, was, I started thinking about insularity it was towards the end of my, my PhD thesis, which was a social and economic history of uh, Cyprus in the 18th century. And during uh, the, well, some of the outcomes of, of my research were some pretty amazing uh, cases, uh, case studies. Uh, the final chapter of the, of the thesis looked at three uh, historical actors and how they reflected... Uh, the uh, the workings of uh, the economy of the island in the sense that they were able to control and manipulate uh, very particular aspects um, of the economy. Uh, just to uh, mention briefly, uh, one of them who was the uh, the muhassil uh, Abdul Baki, who was a Cypriot. Uh, Muslim Cypriot, uh, who was able to accumulate a personal fortune of 8 million kurush. At the time, it was more than half the annual Ottoman uh, revenues. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that was my reaction. I mean, I was reading the document again and again. And, you know, I think for years, I would go, whenever I was writing something about it, I would go back to double check that I actually read the amount correctly. It was a, a massive personal fortune. And the descriptions of his... Um, uh, of of everything he did uh, and and all the excesses that that, that he, he performed on the island were much more uh, graphic and elaborate than what you usually get in Ottoman documentation. You know, you have this standard formulaic description of Zulmutadi, and uh, in his case, you would have very very uh, detailed descriptions of how, for example, he would uh, demolish the houses of people that were unable to uh, pay taxes and take the timber as payment. His, his case is, is, uh, is always uh, uh, depicted uh, as, a, a, in Greek Cypriot historiography, he is depicted as the quintessential corrupt, uh, oppressive uh, Ottoman governor within the um, nationalist um, readings and discourses of, of, of Cypriot history. Uh, what's quite interesting is that he, a, a lot of these petitions were actually from Muslim um, notables uh, or other, uh, other groups uh, or the Mufti or, or whatnot. In any case, um, then uh, you had these very, very detailed descriptions of uh, how he was able to accumulate uh, all that money. And then there was another case, the, the dragoman Haji Yorgakis Cornesios, um, who was a uh, Christian Orthodox. Uh, and he was a man who was able to uh, manipulate the uh, 
the wheat market of the whole island. He 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 had a lot of power, even despite the fact that he was a non-Muslim. And he was uh, able to collect most of the wheat production um, for 1802 uh, in Cyprus. Uh, this was during the um, the uh, Napoleonic Wars, uh, and he exported this to Spain, uh, where there was a huge demand uh, for grain uh, in the midst of a, of, a, of blockades. And while this was an entrepreneurial activity, which uh, allowed him to uh, accumulate again to to um, uh, have a lot of profit out of this. Uh, people in Cyprus experienced a famine uh, out of this. The two years down the line, there's a um, there's a uh, revolt, uh, and really it it, it snowballed uh, into a whole series of events. Um, that lasted for decades uh, and left a huge mark in in Cypriot history. And finally, after I finished with with Hajiogaks, another case I uh, that was uh, quite impressive was an Armenian uh, dragoman of originally the French and then the the uh, the, the British uh, Sarkis, uh, who uh, this was a man who. Uh, was who almost caused a diplomatic episode between uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, and the British. He was very, very well connected with Lord Elgin. Um, and uh, he uh, had uh, in his person, in his own uh, warehouses, he had something like more than half of the of the um, total amount of grain required from the Ottoman uh, um, uh, from from the Ottoman state from Cyprus in one year. Wow! Yeah, that was one single man. So looking at these uh, these three cases uh, in, in 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 one chapter and how they reflected the whole of the economy presented me with a conundrum. And the conundrum was that how could these very impressive uh, instances take place? when Cyprus really was a rather in, inconspicuous, inconspicuous uh, average, not so important province for the empire. It wasn't anything special. It didn't quite stand out. Uh, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Right. I mean, perhaps you could explain for our listeners how it came to be that way then. I mean, Cyprus had been an Ottoman province by the time that that you're examining it for, for a few hundred years. <laughs> what can you say about the development of Cyprus as an Ottoman province that might help us to understand? I mean, what do we know about the demographics? What do we know about the ability of the imperial state to exert control? Uh, what do we know about the power base, perhaps, of these local notables? Cyprus, of course, was conquered in 1571. It's, uh, in, in some of the narratives, it's considered as uh, one of the last major uh, conquests. Uh, of course, Crete comes after that and the reconquest of Moria. But in 1571, um, the Ottomans conquered Cyprus from the Venetians, uh, really because it was a, a major nuisance in terms of protecting the Hajj routes. Uh, and they had um, uh, conquered Egypt and Syria before. Uh, it was part of their legitimacy claims as protectors of um, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And I think from then on, the Ottomans realized that while it was hugely important because 
of uh, because the the, uh, the the Venetians held it prior to them. Um, once the Ottomans had conquered it, they found out that it wasn't as important as they had originally hoped because it became part of a bigger Ottoman lake of what was uh, the the that the Ottoman lake that the Eastern Mediterranean uh, was by became by that time. So from that point onwards, while um, it while Cyprus had been uh, important before, uh, it loses this geostrategic importance. I think it, what what we can learn from this is that obviously uh, this is not something that's stable. Mm. Geostrategic importance is that stable, and there's so many. Every every single book you pick up on Cyprus it starts with its geostrategic <laughs> importance. How you know it's a constant in its history, and of course. Uh, this is not always the case. And actually, this is not unique to the Ottoman Empire. The British uh, find uh, they, uh, find themselves in the same situation shortly after they acquired the island in, in uh, 1878. And it wasn't until they lose Suez that they start investing militarily right. uh, to the island. Nevertheless, um, after after a few decades after the the, the, the conquest and once Crete uh, also became part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, Cyprus slowly becomes some kind of a backwater uh, for the empire for for the Ottoman Empire. And in the 17th century, one can detect several processes. Uh, that really set the stage for what you see in the 18th century and the early 19th century, which, of course, is a crucial period in Ottoman history. Mm. It's been uh, described as as a period of transformation, as a period of adaptation. Um, all these uh, all these ways of trying to understand a period of time that used to be described as decline, uh, then you had decentralization and you had the criticism of really this is a euphemism for uh, decline and yes. uh, there's, a, there's, the, there's still are huge discussions within, within the field about how to uh, describe this, um, this period and uh, it, it's here where uh, we can see Cyprus reflecting mm. uh, all these processes uh, and being very typical in that sense of whatever is happening in the empire itself. It's a microcosm of the empire. You will find every single administrative or fiscal system um, tried out uh, and applied into the island. Uh, it's, it's quite astonishing to see how uh, throughout the 18th century, for example, that, that, that I have studied, um, how many times the administrative status of the island um, had changed, about 11 times. In, well, the, in what sense? In, the, in, the, uh, in every sense. I mean, you, uh, it would depend on who, uh, which uh, kind of fiscal uh, status Cyprus would have. Uh, and then how uh, administration would take place. So you would, uh, it would be a muhasilik, which really meant that it was a tax farm, uh, and the the the, uh, the, uh, the administration of the island uh, would be in the hands of a tax farmer, a muhasil, uh, or it would be. 
part of the has uh, of the uh, of the uh, of the, the, the personal um, lands or tax farms that the Grand Vizier uh, would administer, uh, or it would be uh, a um, it would be a, for a short period of time it would be Malikane, which was a lifelong uh, tax farm. Uh, or it would even be uh, Esham. It was one of the first provinces uh, that it became uh, Esham, which ag- again it was similar to uh, Malikene. For those who are not familiar with all these terms, it would be a live tax farm, but it wouldn't be administered by the tax farmer uh, himself. Uh, but it would be broken down into shares, and then the state would appoint. Uh, a a governor uh, and uh, of course uh, in in other cases um, it would be uh, administered uh, by the financial office of the uh, admiral of the of the Ottoman Empire uh, and all these all these different kinds of administrative status would would every single time it would be because um, there's uh, a there's a socio-economic crisis and we're trying to find a better way to administer this island and the the recurring uh, nature of all these uh, developments uh, would really tells us because it happens this often um, it it really uh, the explanation that I see through the documentation is because Cyprus was never important enough to pay consistent attention in order to deal with all these uh, cases but rather uh, because it would really respond uh, to a major demographic uh, crisis that meant that there wasn't uh, any uh, revenue from the island um, and um, it would change the administrative system in an attempt to um, alter the configuration on the ground. Fascinating. I mean, by the time we get to your later period, the 18th century, and some of the cases that you mentioned, it seems that the level of agricultural production is quite significant. And perhaps you could say something to our listeners about the kinds of crops that are being grown on the island and um, perhaps the quantities and the variations. And because um, I understand that you've been trying to map um, the uh, the distribution of different kinds of crops. So perhaps you could explain that a bit to us. Well, you, you've hit the nail in the head uh, and you, uh, you're, you're giving me the opportunity to uh, say a few things about my current project, um, which is um, I'm trying to... Uh, I'm, I'm processing the first fiscal survey um, that the Ottomans uh, carried when they conquered the island in 1571 uh, with the use of uh, GIS um, uh, methods. Uh, and the reason why I'm doing this is precisely um, what you said. Uh, the, the, I'm trying to understand the, the economic base uh, of, well, the, 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 yeah, the base of the economy of the island uh, and of course it was primarily agricultural um, and there was um, quite a bit of manufacture as well it's a it's a rather understudied uh, point um, but Cyprus was producing essentially to answer your question it was a, a it was producing wheat that was the the uh, most important um, uh, agricultural good um, at the time uh, cotton was also quite um, important uh, silk 
Uh, wine was another one. Uh, it was uh, quite. Uh, it would bring uh, quite a lot of um, uh, money in terms of export, but. Uh, Wine was concentrated in the more mountainous parts um, of the island, which really meant that it didn't have an impact on the everyday life of the island as a whole. It Just was regionally exactly it was regionally concentrated. You wouldn't find wine um, in 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 everyday. Uh, sort of uh, exchanges or in the court records as frequent as you would with uh, cotton or uh, with uh, wheat. So basically, uh, grain, cotton and silk. And the interesting thing here, uh, olives, uh, again, the absence of things here, uh, we see the interesting thing. If we look at the Mediterranean trinity that Brodel uh, talks about, which is uh, grains, uh, wine, uh, and um, and olives. Um, Cyprus is very, very strong on the first uh, one of these. Um, but then uh, wine, as I said, it's regionally, vines are regionally concentrated, and olives really are just for uh, internal consumption. Uh, and that's in sharp contrast to what is happening uh, either in, in, in Crete, to the west of the island, or to uh, greater Syria and, uh, and, and, and Palestine to the east of the island. Wow. Well, I mean, that's exciting already in, in terms of finding these ab- absences. But did you find anything that you weren't expecting to find that, that Cyprus was producing? Were there any kind of new discoveries in terms of the agricultural production? The, the, the major new uh, sort of find with the current project that I'm engaged uh, in uh, is, the, is the importance of flax, how prolific flax is uh, in 1571. And as I said, there, one can see uh, that Cyprus had a, a quite strong manufacturing base uh, according to one um, uh, testimony of a, uh, of a of a European observer. Uh, he calculated um, the exports uh, of Cyprus. Uh, and uh, in, in, in that case, uh, cloth and all sorts of... Um, clothing products uh, were about one third of the value of the exports. Uh, We don't, I wasn't able to find any Ottoman quantitative data that would that would back this up and I'm hoping to at some point uh, but if if this is true then this is it shows how how important the manufacturing of the island was uh, and that's towards the end of the 18th century to find that in the 16th century uh, flax was so prolific pretty much every single village is producing flax uh, which indicates uh, that there is a, a preceding uh, manufacturing base uh, that would process, that would make clothes out of flax that would later be substituted uh, by cotton. Uh, and what I found to be particularly uh, interesting and fascinating, and really the reason why I got into uh, this business of trying, of, of looking at the at the fiscal service and trying to look at the snapshot of the of the of the economy of the island, village by village, was uh, after reading Farouk Tabak's *The Waning of the Mediterranean*, yes. which was a major inspiration for my work. 
and it became so clear how Cyprus reflected bigger, larger Mediterranean trends and, and processes. Uh, so again, that takes me back to the question uh, of, of insularity and what it means to be an island. And as I said, it, it, it was a microcosm of the, island, of, the, of the Ottoman Empire, but it was also a microcosm of, um, of the Mediterranean itself. It would reflect very particular Mediterranean uh, processes that, that didn't diverge uh, from the bigger uh, picture. So I'm here speaking with Antonis Hajikiriakou about his uh, work on uh, the history of Ottoman Cyprus. Um, now, Antonis, you're working here in, in Rethymno on a, on a major project, uh, Mediterranean Insularities, and you're thinking about um, islands and insularities. Could you perhaps explain to those who don't ponder so deeply on these things um, why islands interest you, what's special or not about islands, and what your current thinking on insularities might be? Well, I'm very lucky, first of all, to be here and to work in this uh, fantastic environment with uh, with great colleagues f- from whom uh, I'm learning um, so much. Um, and I get to uh, really stand on the shoulder of giants. Um, and I chose to come uh, here um, for this uh, project working on islands uh, for a great series of, of, of reasons. Um but really what interests me about islands and why um, I, I got into um, this, um, uh, this project is because people tend to think of islands as something uh, extraordinary, as something different, as something that stands out. Um, and I think... Uh, because obviously an island is surrounded by uh, by the sea and it's something separate and something different, uh, people take this uh, the ostensible this ostensible characteristic at face value, and I think what I found through my research is actually uh, that there is nothing obvious, there is nothing self-explanatory about being uh, an island. An island. Um, often um, encompasses a range of uh, different attributes that are often self-contradicting. It can be thought of as a, as a bridge and as a frontier. Uh, it can be seen as something introvert or so, as something extrovert. It can be thought of as something very cosmopolitan or, or, or multicultural or something uh, in, in very purist ways as, as, as a bastion of you know, national or religious um, identity. And, you know, I could go on saying various kinds of these um, mutually exclusive uh, attributes which actually coexist in, 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 in such a setting. Uh, but in embodying all these uh, contradictory attributes at the same time, uh, I also find that it's um, important to realize that they are not exclusive to islands themselves. And this brings me to another, uh, this brings back the question uh, of exceptionalism. 
that one finds uh, when they're um, thinking um, uh, about islands. What I am uh, understanding and what I'm what I'm learning uh, by trying to think and and process uh, all these issues is that uh, there's two issues that determine the kind of insularity that uh, an island has. And uh, let me clarify here that insularity I, I don't take insularity in its literal sense. That is something that is uh, separate. Mm-hmm something that is isolated. Uh, I take it uh, more etymologically, let's say, uh, which means what it means to be and to be perceived of, uh, as uh, and, and how to be perceived of as uh, an island. Uh, and the one is that you have, uh, the one of, of, of the two factors that I, I said that determine the kind of insularity uh, that an island has is uh, what I call a three-dimensional combination uh, that is uh, time of time, space, and context. So the way these three uh, factors interact with each other determines whether, for example, it's, it's, it's a bridge or a stepping stone uh, or uh, a frontier or a backwater, respectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second uh, key uh, element that determines what is an island really is who is the one who's doing the determining, yes. who the, histor- the historical actors who uh, are, are, are thinking or perceiving the island as such. Um, and there, again, I- there's a great variation of how it could be thought of. And what I think uh, this, again, leads to the question of why are we discussing uh, islands? Why uh, is it an important thing? Uh, is anything, uh, any of all these things that I've talked about uh, before, are they exclusive to an island? And of course they are not. Uh, and I think what happens there, it's these um, islands, because they are they are surrounded by water uh, and think that they are uh, clearly delineated uh, geographically and there's a natural border there, uh, they tend to take this, as I said before, at face value. Um, more recent, more recent um, uh, geographical trends, uh, trends in, in geography, of course, uh, really question uh, the idea of a natural border and say natural borders are nothing else than, than a social con- construct. Um, and uh, what what I'm doing, I'm taking this in the study of islands uh, and I'm trying to see what it means for an island to be socially constructed. Fantastic. I mean, one of the things that I've always found quite interesting in the way you, you think about islands is this idea of the island as the mini continent. Could you perhaps say something to our listeners about how you can construct an island as a continent? I mean, obviously continents aren't, in a sense, islands. They're surrounded by water. But um, Asia is a bit different from Cyprus, surely. Yeah, 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 of course. Uh, well, here, you know, the, this, um, there's the Brodelian, uh, the great Brodelian concept of, of miniature uh, continents. Again, here's another benefit of uh, situating uh, either the Cypriot Ottoman or, or, or Ottoman studies within a, within a broader framework. Uh, and here the idea of the miniature continent is something um, that is quite handy and conducive towards understanding or in explaining uh, the uh, the processes and indeed the phenomena that I've described uh, at the beginning of our uh, discussion. And 
for me, the Cypriot insularity really is three things. Um, it's an island that's uh, big enough to be productive uh, and rather uh, uh, rich uh, in its in its own uh, resources. Uh, but it but as I said before, it doesn't quite stand out uh, from the surrounding um, realms. Uh, at the same time, it's small enough to be uh, controlled by local uh, trade and commercial or financial uh, networks. Uh, and finally, it's uh, far enough from Istanbul to escape the attention uh, of major imperial uh, actors. So it's, th it's, it's these three uh, attributes that I find uh, to be very characteristic uh, of uh, what the Cypriot insularity, what the Cypriot condition of being an, uh, an island is, that is big enough, small enough, and far enough. And I think uh, the miniature continent idea of Brodel is something that goes a long way uh, and, it, and it's very uh, helpful uh, when we're, we're thinking about an island um, like Cyprus. Fantastic. I mean, it's it's wonderful to hear these, these beautiful thoughts about islands and particularly about Cyprus. I wonder how historical actors viewed ideas of insularity so if if it's one of your your local notables for example in late 18th early 19th century cyprus what does an island mean to them how do we put this into a discrete historical context well it's the way they project their uh, interactions uh, to the the, the, the in local interactions to um, to the Ottoman state um, itself. Uh, what I, uh, again, trying to think theoretically about all these things um, that are much more uh, empirical and practical, uh, what I found to be uh, very useful is Henri Lefebvre's uh, book, The Production of Space. And he talks about um, the, the three concepts of um, perceived, conceived, and lived space. Perceived space uh, are the more uh, material, let's say, aspects um, of space on the ground. Um, conceived space is, is more about how uh, I take it to be, because of course Lefebvre is not talking historically, he's talking uh, from the vantage point of um, urban, urban studies uh, uh, for from a contemporary, uh, for, a contem for the contemporary uh, period, what he calls um, uh, late capitalism, uh, which I suppose we could uh, describe as the, the, the postmodern or post-industrial um, era. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I am adapting this, uh, this scheme. So I, I said, mentioned before, perceived space. Uh, sorry, con uh, perceived space uh, is other more material aspects. Uh, perceived space is is how administrators and state officials are understanding uh, and trying to streamline uh, space. Uh, so in my case, it's when they're trying to they're constantly changing the administrative status right. and try to to. Um, uh, project or implement an imperial vision. And finally, it's lived space, which is where uh, your question comes in. That is how local uh, indigenous actors are projecting um, their own interactions. And I think uh, a great example to show what this means uh, is um, 
what I said, the the, the dragoman of Cyprus uh, uh, towards the end of the 18th century, uh, he is making an argument about changing the administrative, right. uh, the, not the administrative, so the fiscal status of Cyprus. Uh, and he says, when it was a house of the Grand Vizier, things were much better. Hmm. Uh, and now it's an Isham, uh, which means that we uh, we have a state-appointed uh, uh, governor uh, that is con- who is connected to the Kabudan Pasha. Uh, but it's not part of the um, of the province of the Kabudan Pasha. Again, an interesting uh, way to uh, to to see that it's not quite an island. Cyprus is not quite an island from uh, the Ottoman vantage point. It never really is uh, officially, in my period at least, uh, part of uh, the province of the archipelago. Right. It's 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 something somewhat uh, different. It doesn't have the status of of uh, Crete, which is. An independent uh, ayalet. Uh, nevertheless, uh, go back to my to go back to my example. Uh, uh, the dragoman makes this argument that things were much better before, uh, and he says um, that um, the uh, we're paying much many much more taxes. The, the ta- taxation is much higher um, right now, and indeed, uh, if you look at the figures. Uh, there is a great uh, rise. Uh, however, uh, if you uh, when when you start analyzing those figures uh, statistically and 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 calculate um, either um, uh, inflation uh, or if you convert it into silver you quickly find out that actually the Ottoman state was making no uh, profit. It was making no more money within a period of 15 years. I think it comes down to something like 0.2 percent. Wow. Uh, annually, uh, and this is a period when uh, we see that the balance of trade is changing, and there's uh, the ex the, the the import of luxury goods um, is is noticeable at the time. So someone uh, is making. Uh, is spending money and the Ottoman state isn't making any. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, it seems to me, and I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this, that um, the question of exceptionalism is one that must kind of be quite tricky to overcome. I mean, you mentioned earlier that there's this paradigm that islands are exceptional or different. And that makes sense, perfect sense, I'm sure. But then when we look at individual islands, there are clearly some differences. You just mentioned that Crete is a discrete province and has its own kind of relationship with a wider insular hinterland, I suppose. Um, whereas Cyprus is sort of doing its own thing, but kind of relation to Syria, kind of relation to Istanbul. How do you deal with this question of exceptional circumstances, but within a wider, perhaps more homogenized uh, political space? Well, this is this is what's so fascinating. This is what I find so fascinating with with uh, working uh, with islands. That is, um, in many ways, every island is different. Every island uh, presents uh, its own challenges in trying to uh, understand it. I mean, uh, looking right now, the 
um, in the current project, it's a it's a comp- it's a comparative spatial history of Cyprus and Crete. So I'm actually comparing the two fiscal uh, registers of the twilight, even though they were composed uh, almost a century. Uh, they have a century separating the one from the other. But you can see um, what the major products and what the trends are and they could not be more different <laughs> from uh, from each other. Uh, and actually being here in Crete right now and looking at the landscape and experiencing uh, the island itself, I can very much confirm this um, topographically or geographically or, or, or whatnot. Uh, so these two quintessential Brodellian miniature continents mm-hmm. are very, very different from from each other. At the same time, to say that every island is different, again, one needs to have uh, the uh, one needs to be aware that this should not be seen as an issue of exceptionalism. Uh, and I think the best way to deal with this uh, problem is to contextualize and find the different overlapping temporal or spatial or conceptual um, frameworks within which to situate that uh, the w- w- whatever um, uh, particularities uh, an insular space uh, may have in order to better understand them uh, rather than as something intrinsic to that island I prefer to think of them as something that is the product uh, of different historical coordinates that are reflected at a particular time and space. Fantastic. I mean, this perhaps leads us on to the reason why I have this opportunity to sit here in your lovely office on this beautiful sunny day um, and speak to you about islands because you've just held this major international conference here on Rethymno looking at comparative insularities. Uh, you've already done some comparison, if you just mentioned, between Cyprus and Crete. But you've brought in for this conference scholars working on many different parts of the world and many different ideas about islands. Could you perhaps tell us a bit about how you came to construct this conference and um, how you thought it went? Well, the, the conference title was Insularities Connected, Bridging Seascapes from the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean and Beyond. And it was the, the product of a collaboration I've had with um, other colleagues, uh, namely Alexis Rapas and Valerie Maguire. Um, and um, we've had uh, previous meetings um, in Florence and in, uh, and in France uh, back in 2014. Uh, and the uh, this common uh, engagement this um, uh, research group let's say uh, wanted started off with thinking about islands in the mediterranean trying to see what we can learn um, from each other by making um, these these kind of comparisons and trying to understand uh, what insularity is what islands are and how to think of them uh, historically and otherwise we quickly came across a, a large bibliography by, by what is known as uh, island studies. Usually these kinds of um, uh, inquiries are uh, simply comparative. Uh, you're comparing one island with another uh, or you come up with a typology of, of, of islands and those are quite uh, useful exercises in themselves. But as I said, what's very important for me is... Um, 
is uh, context. Mm. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to work with another very good friend and colleague, um, Sakis Gekas of uh, York University, and we decided to organize uh, this conference and situate it within the uh, Islands in the Mediterranean Research Group activities. Uh, and at the same time tie it with the uh, Marie Curie project here. So there's a, there's a lot of overlapping uh, engagements here. Uh, but the idea was to not simply compare islands, but to rather situate islands in broader conceptual frameworks, be they spatial, temporal, or otherwise, um, and compare those contexts themselves and see what we can learn by situating uh, islands and trying to connect uh, all those frameworks um, uh, w between them and see what we can find out uh, about this mode of thinking of islands as part of a, a context rather than as islands as something separate. <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the premise obviously is, is fascinating. Um, and I know it's early days because the, the conference only finished yesterday when we record, before we recorded this. And we heard some fantastic papers. I can assure the listeners that it was an incredibly stimulating uh, conference. And we heard papers about islands from the Mediterranean, of course, but Fiji and Madagascar and all over the world. What kind of commonalities did you discern um, from the themes that were brought up? And what kind of differences in approach do you think were, were interesting? Well, what was particularly fascinating is, is to was to see uh, those um, uh, in, in, uh, to to see all the uh, elements that I find in my own research or uh, uh, what I've learned by discussing with uh, or previously learned with discussing with um, other scholars uh, to see how many different um, manifestations of similar uh, processes can take place. Islands, uh, the, the sea is what really defines uh, an island and, and people th tend to think of it as what uh, isolates uh, the island. But of course, it's the sea that defines the island uh, that also connects it to the outside world. Um, so I want to go, um, I want to go beyond this ostensible um, characteristic of, of, of isolation and look at uh, connections. Uh, and this is what came out very clearly uh, how these connections are taking place in, in, in other contexts, particularly, well, usually imperial, uh, when, you, when you're looking at such a global scale. I think there's a lot to learn uh, from an imperial um, vantage point. So I think what was particularly useful was, uh, from my uh, vantage point as an Ottomanist, to see uh, how islands can, insularity can become a platform to engage uh, with other colleagues on a global scale, from a global history point of view, rather than simply trying to find connections between the Ottoman Empire yes. uh, and, uh, you know, the British Empire sure. or whatever else, or, you know, look at things from a global perspective. I'm trying to mediate that interaction uh, through a particular uh, question, uh, which is about how to uh, situate an island within an imperial uh, setting. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the terms that I think you use, perhaps you've mentioned it already, but you certainly mentioned it yesterday, was the idea of islands as, as stepping stones. Um, 
do you think that's that's a useful way of thinking about them that's a potential way of thinking about them as i said before being an island insularity is a very broad uh, range of um attributes that starts from isolation and ends in 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 connectivity yes uh, and what is uh, particularly fascinating in my view is uh, how many uh, shades you have within this uh, this range how how broad this range is uh, and also how quickly uh, things can shift uh, or how easily things can shift uh, within within that uh, uh, range fantastic so what's next for this this project uh, well, we just finished the conference. Yes. Um, I think what we are, uh, what we all agreed on, is that there will be um, a publication. Uh, we're hoping for another um, conference as well. Um, uh, but I th- to to have more uh, to to emphasize the global side of things even more. Um, I think the the purpose here uh, was to. Um, have a, a, a bigger Mediterranean focus and bring other uh, scholars from abroad. This was the first kind of, let's say, experimental yes. uh, way of doing this. I think um, there will be, we were thinking of having another uh, conference where the non-Mediterranean hmm. um, connections uh, or uh, case studies uh, will be much more emphasized. Uh, and from then on, I think there will be a uh, publication. Excellent. Well, I'm sure we look forward very much to reading it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to um, to speak to us today and to tell us about your fascinating work on, on Cyprus and on islands. And uh, we really look forward to, to reading your work in the near future. Uh, thanks very much. And I'm, I'm, I'm very glad um, that you came and um, you gave me the opportunity to sort of uh, present and showcase my work uh, on the Ottoman History Podcast. I think um, everyone agrees that it's... it's um, a major instance in their their career and uh, uh, I'm very, very glad for this and grateful. Thank you, Antonis. Oh, my God.